Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. You just had people thinking they tuned into the wrong the wrong. Oh, podcast. yeah. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, we're back. After a one-week break. Well, one week where we delivered a payload of excellence with the great Eli Lake. I hope everybody got a chance to hear. I, I don't always listen to all of our episodes. But I listened to that one, and there was so much more in it about the best books and movies and TV about the news business. It was great, and Eli was great. And I want to apologize to the uh, listeners who caught the unbleeped bleep. We, some of our movie selections were extraordinarily profane, and Colin caught 99%, but one got past the goalie, and we apologize for that, but hope you enjoyed it. Just be be aware that when you get to... The all the president's men section. Tender ears should not be listening. I don't. I know. I, I stipulate. I stipulate for the record that you're a more of a caveat emptor kind of a yeah. broadcaster. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Chris, on our front page. Yes. It's As almost always, time. We are. Yes, we are starting with politics, and we have Fox News pleading. Begging Donald Trump, come for on, Trump to show up. Let's listen. Let's listen to the 2024 GOP debate, which Would, is taking place in about two weeks in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I will be there, and we will record well, the be following enough. day. Are you going? I don't know. I don't know yet. Okay. Well, I know. I will be I, there, you, barring unforeseen events, it, and we'll report back the following day. To even, even if Trump is not there, you will be. Ah, uh, yes. You will yes. be enough. You are sufficient. Okay, so let's take a listen to Fox and Friends making the case uh, to uh, the Donald to appear on the network's debate. Yeah, of course. I know he's angry at everything that the that he feels the, this administration of the Democrats, the DOJ, have put him through. But don't take it out on the Republicans because Republicans want to see him up on stage. And don't take the voters for granted. Yes, right. he is ahead by a lot. But to see him up there on the stage would just be wonderful because we want to see how they interact. We want to hear their policies. That's how he became Donald Absolutely. Trump the first time. Uh, he, he made it entertaining. He blew everybody away at the he first and Fox debate. I take a little bit of exception, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I take a little bit of exception to the host network intervening in this process. I do think they should let this thing play out. It is a campaign decision, and let Trump make his own mistakes. Well, I definitely fall on the side of the fact that debates are TV shows. And a debate is a TV show. They're not. I've complained here at length about the degree and, and, and now obviously unfortunate degree to which the RNC has tried to orchestrate things around these debates. It's in both the party's interest and the network's interest for there to be cleavage between the party and the network. And that way the party doesn't have to be accountable for all the standards. They don't have to be accountable for all of those things. They can just say, yep, it's a debate and we're not – Eliana, the word sanction – is a funny word, because previously what 
parties tended to do. We've only had debates, televised debates in primaries since 1980. And in the previous era, what parties would do would be they would sanction candidates who participated in unsanctioned debates, right? So if you participated in a debate that had not, that was not allowed, then you would, could be penalized delegates at the convention. That was the idea to try to prevent a million debates from taking place. Now the emphasis goes differently in which the party sanctions specific debates and gives them their imprimatur and is partnering. So that makes it very sticky. But at its core, this is a TV show. And Fox has got with the and they're partnering with the Young Americans for Freedom, I think. And Rumble. Sure. Sorry, Rumble. But Fox is hosting a television show and they want the best television show that they can get. I don't think it's in Donald Trump's interest necessarily to attend that debate. I I think that if I'm Trump, here's well, let me tell you what. If I was Donald Trump, my tie would be longer. But also, (laughs) it is true to say that if I was Donald Trump, here's what I would want. I would want that debate to go on without me. And I would want Chris Christie, particularly, or whomever, to start going after Trump with him in absentia. And then force the other people on the stage to defend Trump. Because that's what Tim Scott doesn't want. That's what Ron DeSantis doesn't want. That's what Mike Pence doesn't want, to be in a position where they kind of have to stick up for Trump or the conversation turns that that Christie uh, becomes the the skunk at the garden party and the rest of them separate themselves from Christie by either being mom on Trump or even defending Trump. Do you, so do you think he shows up or not? I I think that given his lead in the polls and also given what history says about what front runners do with debates, I would say no. Now, what makes this different is that Trump, as his legal woes deepen, can't afford to be seen as in the basement, right? And Donald Trump ducking a debate is works different. Donald Trump not debating is different than Mitt Romney not debating or Jeb Bush not debating, as they both chose to do in early debates in their cycles. He's the front runner, but he's a front runner who is famous for being pugilistic and tough and all of those things. If he is seen to be ducking, that will be one of the top. If he doesn't go, the the top takeaway, I, I disagree. I understand why Steve Ducey is making the case the way that he is. But the number one reason for Trump to participate in the debate is that if he does not go, he will look like he's scared of it. I don't think he's made up his mind. I'm sure that's, I'm sure they that's are right. sending mixed messages. You have Kellyanne Conway on the one hand saying, keep the podium warm. Right. And at the same time, you know, the executives at Fox would not be beseeching him, begging him to show up if he had indicated well, he would be there. From a business from a business perspective, there are there's lots of money on the line for Fox here of a debate with Trump and a debate without Trump in terms of uh, viewership for sure. All right. Speaking of the other candidates, we had Ron DeSantis Ronnie D. after laying off 30% of his campaign replacing his campaign manager yesterday. So Janera Peck 
who was running the campaign and who was a disciple of Phil Cox, who had been overseeing the governor's uh, re-election in 2022, replaced by uh, DeSantis's chief of staff, mm-hmm. um, James Utmeyer, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. I could be wrong on that. Apologies but, if, if yes, not. Yes. Sorry, James. Utmeyer. Um, replaced by James. Yes. Who has never run a campaign, doesn't have campaign experience. He's a lawyer. Right. And who was chief of staff in the governor's office. And so DeSantis, it's funny, a sort of Cheney thing happened here where DeSantis had asked Upmeyer, could you interview people on the campaign, ask them what's gone wrong here and come to me with an assessment of what are, what the problems are? And all of a sudden, you know, Upmeyer's replaced Janera Peck as campaign manager, which is, you know, how Cheney ran the search process for Bush's VP and ended up as as the VP. Anyhow, on the on the politics before we get to the the media part here, only to say that this what this sounds like is is that Janera Peck will stay around and Cox will be around, but this actually makes sense to me because what you want is a day to day person to execute these things and make sure that people are showing up and doing what they're doing, and and is. This campaign manager is more manager than strategist, right, as the name indicates. And I think this is a perfectly reasonable choice. Unreasonable, though. Here is the following paragraph from the New York Times coverage of this decision. Rather than ripping off the Band-Aid all at once, Mr. DeSantis's campaign has made successive rounds of changes in recent weeks that have been an enduring distraction as he tries to reverse his decline in polls. He has taken these bus trips, blah, 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 blah. Enduring distraction to who? Why? To the reporters themselves. So not to say that Ron DeSantis has been doing well lately. He has not. But this is a, a perfect example of the self-licking ice cream cone that is presidential campaign coverage. I I don't agree with you. Okay. It is newsworthy when a campaign has these kinds of problems. And the media is a part of these campaigns that he has to contend with. So the fact that he is having to go in and order an assessment of what is wrong with his campaign is actually a distraction to the campaigning he is supposed to be doing. So sure, like the process stuff, it is what the media loves to cover. There is a smug self-righteousness and clear pleasure that the media is taking in covering DeSantis. At the same time, I had lunch with a reporter friend, mainstream reporter friend the other week, and we were talking about, you know, never DeSantis's pitch to voters is supposed to be competence. Right. And his campaign is displaying such incompetence. The, the contrast is really striking. All of that, um, all of that is true, Un- undoubtedly. That the the pains again. This is more politics than press. But the idea, the Jeff Rowe, the all of the Ted Cruzian is all all of the stuff. The abstract strategy that they brought in their. Uh, misplaced uh, expectations and the misplaced expectations that they encouraged in others, all of that stuff, this has been a cluster bleep, right? This has been a thoroughgoing strategic goof. And you're right, it does point to a weakness in DeSantis's central campaign pitch, much as the fact, look, at the, 
in the end, the problem is, as always, with the candidate himself. And I use as a one good to isolate into one moment. He's trying to get his ship righted and he's trying to get back on track. He's doing an interview and he just says, yeah, we'll send RFK Jr. down to the FDA. We'll get him straightened out down there. You're like the CDC to the CDC. And this is on like some niche. And when I say niche, I wish that we were had a niche as big as that podcast. So feel free. But to go on, if he went on Ink Stained Wretches and said, and we don't have politician guests, so don't ask. But it, Don't rule anything out, Chris. I guess he's written a book. We can, we can have him come and talk about don't his book. Don't rule anything out. But having Meatball uh, don't come, limit us. come on here and say, yeah, maybe we'll send this guy down to, maybe we'll send this wackadoodle down to the FDA and straighten him out. You're not helping, right? So he has had bad instincts. And all, all, of, the, all of that is true. Hunt, hunted pity. My point here is, so you have the reporter for The Times saying what he should have done rather than ripping the Band-Aid off all at once. And by the way, DeSantis, it points to another failure of DeSantis that he is not able to shape the media narrative better, right? The media, as you say, is part of the story. And it's not surpri- it should not be surprising to him, and it is not surprising to me that the coverage is this way. My only narrow point is when the press talks about these problems, they're really talking about the problems of their own perceptions, right? We don't like the way that you're doing We think you're doing it wrong, and this is a problem for you. For voters in Boone, Iowa, right, this is not what they're talking and thinking about. But the press coverage of it creates downstream problems. It, it is DeSantis's fault that he's not controlling it. But I would, it would be better if the cover, people covering the campaign trail understood that they were the audience for this stuff, not the rank-and-file voter. What about the Associated <laughs> Press piece about DeSantis well, that's just fair. It's just, this this next one is just a DeSantis straightforward. Is defending new slavery teachings. Civil rights leaders see a pattern of quote policy violence. Policy violence. Po- I mean, it's just that's if if everything is violence, nothing is violence, right? If everything is violence, then nothing is violence. And the misappropriation of the word violence to describe things that are not violent is real bad not just for meatball here. And it again, this stuff probably helps him because the more the press attacks yeah. DeSantis, the better his potential voters probably like it. But holy cannoli, policy violence associated press. And the quote is from, I want to get it right. I'll, I'll read it. African-American leaders decry what they call a pattern of, quote, policy violence against people of color imposed by the DeSantis administration that reached a low point after the recent release of an, quote, anti-woke public school curriculum on black history. That's it. DeSantis has perfected Uh, the art of using policy violence that we must stop, said Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP. His organization issued a travel advisory for Florida in May, warning African-Americans against DeSantis's aggressive attempts to erase black history and restrict diversity, equity and inclusion programs in Florida schools. I don't know Derek Johnson, but I assume Derek Johnson says a lot of things. Right. And the problem with this story is the credulous like, well. People are saying that a lot of people are saying that this is policy violence. Don't use that word when it doesn't mean what it is supposed to mean. And Associated Press should do way better than that. I'm not I'm not holding out hope, Chris. (laughs) Um, 
And we debated whether to talk about this because it's a little bit of old news But now. there's a lot going on in Biden yes. family land. The People magazine on late on a Friday night popped an exclusive. President Biden speaks out on Hunter's Daughter 4 with Arkansas Woman. Quote, Jill and I only want what's best. And the quote was Biden for the first time referring to his seven grandchildren. This is not a political issue. It's a family matter. President Biden's statement continues. Jill and I only want what's best for all of our grandchildren, including Navy. You know, nothing so heartfelt as issuing a formal statement to People Magazine. Recognizing your daughter, granddaughter on a Friday evening. So Friday night is the is the turkey drop or the taking out the trash for your public utterances in office. You do it, especially in the summertime, you do it in the in the late afternoon on a Friday and figure that it'll be gone by Monday. This is significant. This is journalism, journalistically significant for a couple reasons. One, the strategy, choosing people, doing that. Number two, Maureen Dowd gets results, right? We talked here about her column uh, a few weeks ago in which she said it's seven grandchildren, not six, Mr. President, and just took the bark off of Joe Biden for putting himself forward piously as a family man and America's pop pop and then shunning his granddaughter in Arkansas. And she got results. So Biden did change approach. And I think the other thing I would say is that this is a signal for the shift in the way th- the administration is approaching the problem of the story of the Biden family in the press. The Hunter Biden plea deal debacle is was a mile marker on the road to a point where Democrats basically if Joe Biden can't deal with his son, his party and the political apparatus and and sympathetic voices in the media are going to do it for him. And I have watched the journey on Hunter Biden. What do you mean by that? So story A about Hunter Biden. It's an inspiring story of recovery. Here was this person very troubled and he's better now. And what what a good and every American family can relate to this because addiction has touched the lives of almost every American in some way. And people can understand. So by that, do you mean the Biden himself wasn't going out and saying that it was allies saying that for him? Biden took. The understandable tact of saying publicly, I'm very proud of my son. He's the smartest person I've ever met in my life. Wow. Is what he said. Wow. And I know some of the people Joe Joe Biden has met. Like Joe Biden has met a lot of very smart people. Hunter Biden, maybe less so. Janet Yellen or Hunter Biden. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know. That's Oh, now. Oh, now. I don't know, Chris. Oh, now. The reality of... And we t- we've talked here about the stories from NBC, New York Times and other places about people can't talk to Biden about his son. That was one that was one mile marker. The the public coverage, the mainstream media coverage of that Biden is not able to address this uh, issue internally. And what we have seen, I believe, is Hunter Biden is going to be drummed out by Democrats and by sympathetic voices in the press, and that we are going that we have gone from inspiring story to this is a distraction. So stage two was this is just a distraction that Republicans are whipping up to try to keep attention off of Trump. Now we're in stage three. Hunter Biden is a jerk, right? The 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 final stage, and I think you saw this with the coverage of the Devin Archer testimony about 
and obviously it's sympathetic to Biden to say, well, he didn't know what Hunter Biden was putting him on these phone calls about. He didn't, you know, he he was blindsided. He he was unwitting about the way that Hunter Biden was using him. But I think we have from the from a narrative, from a mainstream narrative, we've gone from Hunter Biden inspiring story of recovery to Hunter Biden distraction to now Hunter Biden is rotten. And I think that was a logical way that that would have to go because he is an unaffordable luxury. If Joe Biden thinks that he can invite Hunter Biden to state dinners and hang out with this guy in a public way, I don't think that his party and the press are going to let that happen. We also got this very amusing report. And again, this the is funniest like a story great, about monkeypox ever. Well, a great way that the mainstream media like does not put two and two together. Politico West Wing Playbook had a report on the highest paid staffers in the Biden White House, and they report the highest paid staffers in 2023 are detailees, with the highest earner at $260,718 being Dimitri Daskalakis, who helped lead the White House monkeypox response team. That dynamic can lead to some awkwardness (laughs) awkwardness. with some detailees making significantly more than their peers and sometimes even more than their boss. Okay, this the monkeypox advisor has gone out to talk about how he supports the joy of risky sex and run walk down a runway at a fashion show in a harness and all this stuff. They don't like say this is the guy making two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Like, take a look, guys. Maybe we want to, you know, raise some questions about this. No. So they didn't they didn't put that together. But it's it's obscene. It's that's 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 not a bad amount of jack for working in the White House. And I'm sure that that's I'm sure I don't. What does a cabinet secretary make these days? I have no idea. President's knocking down 400, I think. Is that still right? A little more than 400, maybe. But That's, that's the president. Yeah, that's yeah. the president. I don't know what a cabinet secretary makes. 235 for right. serving Dimitri, in the United States Dimitri's cabinet. Dimitri's crushing the secretary of state. Crushing. The, take take that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Speaking. I, too, can walk down a runway in a, in a harness. Well, you know, more, pa- more power yeah. to you. More power to you. But would you do it for 260? Yes. All right. There you go. 100%. Speaking of attire and politics, New York Times interview with John Fetterman. By the way, how many times has this story been written? I'm so sick of profiles of John Fetterman and references to his hoodie. Find another beat and figure to cover. John Fetterman, hoodie and all, is adjusting to life in the Senate. And this is, and I want to give credit and blame as it is due, this is an interview. Annie Carney writing for The Times. And Time Magazine put him on the cover. Time Magazine put John Fetterman on the cover? Yep, and that was a Molly Ball piece that how John Fetterman came out of the darkness. It came out eight days before this New York Times piece. Everyone's written this piece. Wow. That is some good spinning by Team Fetterman. And I guess he is a figure of fascination. He is famous and all of that stuff. But these the, the questions are in this interview are are, are something special. Were they, were they tough? You've been in Congress for just over six months. What is your overall impression of how the place functions? What does all the political posturing, does, does, does all that political posturing make you cynical about Washington? You've introduced legislation to expand access to contraception with more than a dozen Democratic co-sponsor. Is there any Republican support for that in the Senate? 
Pennsylvania is going to be critical in the 2024 presidential election. You're seeing a lot of President Biden. Are you all con- are you at all concerned about his age? Is it difficult to keep talking about your own struggles with mental health, or do you enjoy the responsibility of the new role? Even before you checked yourself into Walter Reed for treatment for depression, you were a figure of fascination on Capitol Hill. Other senators would even stop you for selfies. Why is there so much interest in you? You're living alone in Washington, separated for most of the week from your three kids and your wife, who still live in Braddock, PA. No question, just statement. Uh, Six years is a long term. Would you consider moving your family to Washington for a sustainable work-life balance? Uh, You know what? I hope when my turn in the barrel comes, the New York Times ever chooses to write about me, I... Do you, do you think the questions will be like this for me? But but the, how about like, how about? Why are you such a piece of crap? Do you, okay, so here's a here's a, here's a question. Do you think David McCormick, the businessman who lost Republican nomination to Dr. Oz in your Senate race, will run against Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania next year? At least it's, I mean, it's not a tough question, but it's it's a question. Then then we get right back on track with this one. Do you think the multiple indictments of former President Donald Trump will hurt him politically in your state? And I, in in. In defense of uh-huh. this, it's kind of hard to ask him tough questions given his Yeah, so don't state. do it. And then the last one, ever think about dropping the sweatshirt and shorts uniform and just wearing a suit in Congress? Are you ready to buckle down and give up your lovable outsider image and put on a suit? Q&A, bleh, right? This is why you don't do Q&A. This is why you just write a piece so that people can't read your questions because obviously, and you know this is true, sometimes... The questions aren't important. You just want to give people an opportunity to talk. And sometimes you get a great piece without having to ask very difficult questions. But this is, you know, uncool. It's like a lot of all the other Fetterman pieces. Yeah, it's just there isn't an exact analog on the Republican side that you can find. But just imagine. We know why, Chris. Well, but just imagine if somebody did this with Mitch McConnell. You recently froze at the microphone and were unable to get a get your train of thought. You know, what enchants you about What was that like for you emotionally? Yeah, what was that like for you emotionally? How did you feel when people say that you're too old and you should retire? <laughs> how does that make you feel? And just this but my favorite one. Does all of that political posturing make you cynical about Washington? Mm-hmm. Are they going to ask Mitchell McConnell that question? <laughs> Probs not. Probs not. Up next. Oh, business section. D-D-D. New York Times, according to the Wall Street Journal, has added 180,000 digital subscribers, all of whom want to play Wordle. And by the way, if anyone from the New York Times listens to this podcast, I have two pleas for you. Number one, make connections, put connections in the app. Do you play connections? No, I don't even know what that is. Connections is fabulous. It's like SAT prep. You get a bunch of words, and then you have to sort them into four that they're they're connected in some way, and you have to determine in what way. My eldest man child and I play it daily. Please put it in the app. That would be great. And then they have a new game, which is amazing, which is a historical timeline game where they give you one date in human history, okay, one event in human history, and then they bring up the successive questions. You have to place them on the timeline around it. And I want to tell you. I am here for it. I love this game so much. It's so good, and it's weekly. So their game their game situation is they're peaking. But anyway, the real story here is... They have almost 10 million subscribers, which that's a lot. Yeah, and they are making a lot of revenue. The money is they're rolling in the dough boy, 
and the athletic is a big part of that, an increase in total revenue of 55%. So the athletic games, things that aren't the news, are generating a lot of money for the New York Times and their quarterly numbers. Overall revenue increased 6.3% from a year earlier to $590.9 million, while net profit decreased $46.6 million, partly due to the one-time gain and an impairment charge this quarter, both of which were related to real estate. So the New York Times is really doing it. This much fawning over the New York Times makes me uncomfortable. Well, that's that's fine, except to say this. The New York Times, so the Washington Post would like to be the New, New York would. Times. They would really like to be the New York Times. A lot of places would really like to be the New York Times. What is happening in terms of the, the way that the Times, so basically the Times got out ahead of the Washington Post. Well, they were always ahead of the Washington Post, but they, they stole a march on the Washington Post at the beginning of the Trump era in terms of online subscriptions. Then the Post came and really caught up. They surged. They did a lot of clickbaity stuff. As I, as I, as I read in a great book, it's called Broken News, talked about optimizing for anger at the Washington Post. And the Times has now stolen another march and sort of moved ahead by moving out of just politically, and they were never this, but broadening their appeal to younger people. To, out of news and into yep. cooking and games. And it's a li- it's the, the lifestyle epicenter energy is real and they're succeeding with it. But you know where you can't do that? Welch, West Virginia. That's where you cannot do that. And that is the next item, which is, for me, personally painful, or it, it pains me, about the story of the newspaper, the Welch News, which I have been to their offices. You have? Sure. I've been to their offices. I have read the Welch News a hundred year, for 100 years down in the West Virginia coal fields. The Welch News was, was down there, and now it is not there anymore. And here's the lead. Months after Missy Nestor ended the Welch News' 100-year run, she can barely stand to walk through the office doors of the newspaper her mother taught her to read with growing up in West Virginia's southern coal fields. It's still too painful. Welch News owner and publisher's desk is covered with unpaid bills and her own paychecks, a year's worth she never cashed. Phones that used to ring through the day have gone silent. Tables covered with typewriters, awards, and a century's worth of other long-abandoned artifacts are reminders that her beloved paper has become an artifact, too. And this is just I, – I, I commend this piece to you and to our listeners because it is an excellent encapsulation of how local news, the, the, as the death of these local news outlets – what are the reverberations in these communities? What are the consequences? And the New York Times is crushing it, right? You can make a lot of money if you have a lot of money to invest with and do this and on this big format. So the, the story of news in decline is uneven even on the local level. But I would just really encourage everybody to read this and think about and, – and here's, here's AP doing good work – and read this story about how it happens and what happens after it's gone. Chris, you sent the following story that went straight into my don't care bucket. What? <laughs> oh, over to you. What is it? Oh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this from Pointer. Okay. Yes. So. Um, nah, nah. Uh, Who cares? All right. Well, with that, with that <laughs> collegial setup, I will say. So po- I like that Colin's laughing. A, a reporter for the Pointer Institute's journal, 
of journalism, uh, explores the question of whether journalism should be designated as STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And it is, I believe the word is goofia, to suggest that, and what makes it worse is the suggestion is coming from people who want to create a hack in the immigration system yeah, to allow to allow journalism students to stay in America long enough to finish their degrees, which they cannot do because they're classified as being in the humanities. And, the, and, and where how can these foreign journalists stay in the United States to finish their degrees to work in American newspapers if we do not create this carve out for them? And I would say this, go to Welch. Go someplace and report on something, right? Uh, we don't need – and look, people want to get master's degrees in journalism. I'm not mad at you. Uh, if you want to teach journalism particularly, I got it. I understand. But go work, right? Don't go get your master's degree in journalism as soon as you're done with college. Go work. Go find someplace. I am 100% on board with this. I am anti-journalism school. I think I think if you want to go back later and get your master's, I'm, I'm still against it. I, I, I obviously have not done it because four and a half years was more than enough college for me. But but not not that I, I learned all I could, but it was I enjoyed about all of it. I could stand. I am against it. I journalism degrees are to me a dubious proposition and certainly real world experience is is what's necessary. And just as another broader point. It's not science, technology, engineering, or mathematics. God knows it's not mathematics. If you've ever watched a journalist try to do statistics, uh, you know it is not mathematics. And th don't make it that. Even if it's a trick, don't make it that. Chris, it yes. is time for our facile file. Oh, yes. First up. Did you know? Yes. Lay it on us. You know, it's been, we've been suffering from these heat waves. Yep. It's been really hot. But are they racist? Um, they are racist, uh, I knew according it. to The Guardian. I knew it. Which reports, racism at the heart of U.S. failure to tackle deadly heat waves. Expert Comma, warns. expert warns. Yes. Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Wave Will Kill You First, found, quote, engine of planetary chaos in travels from Antarctica to California. The Guardian reports. He told The Guardian that people of color, including millions of migrant workers who are bearing the brunt of record-breaking temperatures as farmhands, builders, and delivery workers, are not guaranteed life-saving measures like water and shade breaks because they're considered expendable. I don't really understand how that corresponds to them causing the heat. Well, their uh, indifference to people suffering yeah. is because they're black. To be blunt about it, the people most impacted by heat are not the kind of voting demographic that gets any politician nervous. They're unsheltered people, poor people, agricultural and construction workers. So his argument really is that we're not tackling this because the people impacted by it are. Yeah. Um, according to Goodell, the yeah. risks faced by mostly black and brown workers also reveal enduring elements of scientific racism previously used to justify forcing enslaved African people to do backbreaking farm work in the scorching South. Quote, there were all kinds of crazy ra racist ideas like African people having thicker bones in their skulls that insulated them from heat. While nobody talks about that explicitly now, it is absolutely an undercurrent that having Mexicans pave roads in Austin in 107 degrees... 42 Celsius, is fine because they're from Mexico and used to it. Or what? Or what? Again, I would say to Mr. Goodell, poor people do not live as well as rich people. 
income inequality is real. It is problematic in some ways. It is overstated in some ways. But the idea that if the immigrants coming to the United States were coming from white countries that were poor, they would also not be the one paving the roads, right? If there were, let's, I don't know, Irish, right? If we, if we were seeing that kind of diaspora from a white country, you think they wouldn't be paving? You think that indifferent people of color sitting in air-conditioned rooms would not be happy to have Irish people paving the roads in 107-degree heat? What a bunch of crapola. This is, this is the kind of thing. It cheapens what real racism is. It's, this is, I don't know which one of you found this, but this is. That was all Colin. This is this is oh. facileness. This is it's peak facile. If heat waves are racist, surely return to work isn't racist. Surely ending Zoom meetings is not racist, is it? Let me just read from this L.A. Times article. As Laron Barton weighed his options, he realized what he had to do. If he took a pay cut of $5,000, he could have a fully remote tech job that would let him roam the country and give him the flexibility he craved. Sounds good. Or he could keep his salary and stay at his current job. A network engineer, yada, yada. San Francisco um, hospital. Barton, who is black and staff. Oh, sorry. Working remotely during the pandemic showed him a whole different lifestyle. No commute more time with his family, and a break from the onslaught of microaggressions and other racist behavior Amazing. he had to endure. Uh, In 2021, just 3% of black, white-collar knowledge workers wanted to return to full-time in-office work. Compared, compared to 21%, 21% of white ones. ones. Must be racism. The research found hybrid or remote work arrangements increased black workers' feelings of belonging at work and boosted their ability to manage stress. This is... I got to say, L.A. Times, I didn't think that anybody could top heat waves are racist this week. But that rem that ending remote work is racist is truly amazing that you were protected from microaggressions. Well, wow. Chris, up next, speaking of <laughs> racism, Lizzo this, is I, this is my fault. on Lizzo right now because of, fault. you know, alleged abuse and fat shaming of her. Yeah, like backup dancers or something. Right. And so the Daily Beast is out with a piece remind, telling us that, you know, we should have we should have known that this was coming because Lizzo was never as progressive as we wanted her to be. <laughs> this is fully in my don't care bucket because I don't follow pop culture at all. Oh, whereas I am deeply. Yeah. I, I'm I'm in I'm in the content river of Lizzo more than I am. In I had never sports. heard I had never heard of Lizzo until she was given James Madison's flute. Do you remember when? No, I didn't even know that happened. So it was a whole thing. I forget which uh, foreign potentate had made a gift of a crystal flute to James Madison when he was president, and that had gone to the Smithsonian. And for some special occasion, Lizzo, who is a rapper. No, pop, pop star. star. Okay, yeah. so well, I knew that. Okay, so Lizzo, a performer. We don't have Jay the intern or Nate Moore, though. I think Nate Moore would prompt Nate Moore, who is out this week. I don't know that we could rely on him as a reliable Lizzo cultural arbiter. But we're flying. We're, Colin has to do. Colin. Colin is as close as we're going to get. But when she was allowed to play this flute, at some. You remember this? It was, in it was in D.C. and it was like at some special event. And here comes Lizzo. And I was like, who is this person in this getup? And why is she playing James Madison's flute? And at the time, 
the amount of coverage of this is so great. A founding father, slave owner, his flute is now against the lips of this blah, 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 blah. Take that, James Madison, et cetera, et cetera. And then Lizzo, as I understand, is being sued by a backup dancer, three backup dancers, a trio of backup dancers. For abuse, fat shaming, something like that. For being basically James Brown and being too demanding and too mean and that it's a hostile work environment. And again, as if you are in the touring company of a pop musician and they're yelling at you and it's not good work conditions. I don't think anybody should have bad work conditions, but really? Like, I mean, come on. I've heard many such stories over the years. I just had to include this. I had to include this because the headline is as facile. You just couldn't get more facile than the Daily Beast under the subhead Truth Hurts saying that Lizzo was never as progressive as we wanted her to be. Maybe she's a musician and a pop star and maybe she is not. And by the way, I want to just say Stop calling things iconic. Rob Long, this is for the great Rob Long. This is a bugaboo for him. I share it. Lizzo didn't have to be an icon. You could have just liked her music, and it could have been, that could have been sufficient. Well, do your sports section thing, because I picked the style section, and I said, this is hard-hitting journalism. As turnabout, it's turnabout is fair play. Yes, and I just cannot wait to get to the style section. Since you don't care, I will go ahead. I will begin with the beginning, which is the teams of Major League Baseball own, and certainly in the case of Nassen, which used to be the Orioles only, or was the, there's the Yes Network, doesn't matter. But these regional sports networks that air the games of these teams, whether it used to be Bally's, whether it's Fox Sports, whether it's whatever. And we've talked here before about all the upheaval that's gone on. Anyway, the announcer for Nassen for the Orioles games, a guy named Kevin Brown, is very good. As an aficionado of sports announcing, Kevin Brown is excellent, and I see good things in his future. But not seeing good things in his future, so you don't know this, but the Orioles, who have been historically heinous, right? Like if you could demote a team out of the major leagues into AAA status— the Orioles would have been demoted a couple of seasons ago because they were just— I definitely don't know this. They were just awful. And this season, they're good. They're playing with spunk, and I, this pains me as a Cardinals fan. Who's, the Cardinals are really struggling, but the Orioles are, are doing great. And in on a trip to Tampa Bay to cover them, Brown said the following. He said that— The Orioles had won more games in 2023 at Tropicana Field, where they play, where the where the Rays play, than the previous two years combined. Now that's a good, interesting fact, right? They've won more games this season so far than they did in the previous two seasons combined. He was suspended for two weeks at the behest, the athletic reports, of the team's owner, John Angelos. And he was suspended for pointing out what is a good thing, right? You were bad before, you're good now. And he was suspended for that. And outcry follows and people have blamed Angelos and there's been all this backlash. But here's the thing. And when I talk to people about what they want in journalism, they say, why don't we have good journalism anymore? I say, well, you need a lot of money. And they say, okay, well, we'll put a lot of money into it. And then you have to be okay with them saying things you don't like. 
And if you want to have a good sportscaster, they have to be able to talk about interesting stories, not just smooch the patooties of the owners constantly. And we see this with a lot of MLB coverage. We see it with hockey coverage. We see it with NFL is a crazy story of this stuff. As sports coverage becomes part of the corporate product, if even pointing out a good thing, which is that they're winning a lot more than they did in the previous two years, can knock you out, you're not going to have sports coverage at all, right? If that if that's too, too strong a wording, then you're not going to have sports coverage at all. It is time, at long last, for our style section. I came across my favorite woman, Bethany Frankel's review of the new It Bag on Instagram. So she's rich. So she goes and buys this new Bottega Veneta handbag and reviews it. Is it really all it's cracked up to be? Is it worth $5,000? And this is her review. Another day, another fake news influencer story. Okay, so this is the bag that is Bottega, and it's known as the new It Bag if you listen to influencers on social media. It's the bag that everybody needs to have, of course. Okay, it's $5,000. Now, it's, I'm not, I'm five, five and a half. Forget my hideous house dress, but let's just focus on the bag. It's under my breast. What, I, it's, it's not, it can't be adjustable, so this is it. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. Um, it, this is a $5,000 bag from Bottega because Kylie Jenner says it's the best bag she ever had in her whole entire life. That's fake news because you can't even open it up and get in there. Like at least frankly with an Hermes bag, you are paying a ton of money, but you can get in the thing. So this is this, I, I guarantee you this costs like hundred dollars to make this is going back sorry Bottega this is not it for five thousand dollars for eight hundred to twelve hundred maybe the color is great five thousand dollars just letting you know bought this to show you this sorry Chris I mean this is news you can use I freaking loved this so, and I love her so follow file do they have a Chinese knockoff of I, this bag for sure for sure. Will you acquire this? No, Chinese no, market? I don't even like the bag. What's wrong with the bag? Other than what she it's not out. cute. It's not. It's not cute. And she says it doesn't even open well. And I mean, she she dissuaded me. It's not worth it. News you can use. She said, you know, get the Hermes. Bethany Franklin. I loved get, it. Get the get the Hermes. Yes, that's right. That's always that's always the way. Yes. Out. That's always the way out. Chris, it is now time for our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And my obsession of the week, there are a couple of stories that I thought were fantastic about Chinese influence Mm -hmm. in American universities and in American discourse. The first was a wonderful Free Beacon report by an intern, an intern who was only a rising sophomore in college. And I'm going to link that piece. College journalists getting it done. About a gift from a Chinese company to MIT that was used to fund MIT research on artificial intelligence. The company was later blacklisted by the Trump administration and is now under further sanction by the Biden administration for its role in surveilling the Uyghurs. And it's a fascinating story about the partnership between Chinese entities, American universities, the research they're funding, et cetera. Wonderful piece. I also loved 
the New York Times report. Headline, a global web of Chinese propaganda leads to a U.S. tech mogul. And it is a piece about how a big Democratic donor, his name is Neville Roy Singham. Oh, God. And he's married to a founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans. Okay. And how various Chinese propaganda groups around the world are all traced back to him. He's funding them. And what? that, yes, it's super interesting. So in New Delhi, corporate filing show, Mr. Singham's network financed a news site, NewsClick, that sprinkled its coverage with Chinese government talking points. China's history continues to inspire the working classes, one video said. These groups operate in coordination. They have cross-posted articles and shared one another's content on social media hundreds of times. Many share staff members and office space. They organize events together and interview one another's representatives without disclosing their ties. Now, even more interesting than that is that Code Pink used to protest Chinese human rights abuses. He married this Code Pink founder, Jody Evans, in 2016 and since then, Code Pink has become a Chinese stalking horse. But Code so Pink goes Code further. Code Pink goes further, defending the Chinese government's policies. In a 2021 video, a staff member compared Hong Kong's pro-democracy demonstrators to the rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th that year. In June, Code Pink activists visited staff members on the House Select Committee on China unannounced. In the office of Representative Seth Moulton, Democrat of Massachusetts, activists denied evidence of forced labor in Xinjiang and said the congressman should visit and see how happy people were there, according to an aide. I just thought this was a fantastic report. Way to go, New York Times. Um, I had no idea, and I loved the Code Pink aspect. So awesome. really interesting. And like the Chinese are hard at work spreading propaganda and around the world. And Code Pink just yeah. bleh. Embarrassing. Yeah, the bleh. That's my my commentary on that. Okay, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, writing at Reason, points to something I have talked about here before, and it is not just an obsession of the week. It is an obsession of all time. When we talk about what went wrong and who's to blame in American public life in our moment, it is fair to say that the rise of social media has played its part. But It is time for a corrective on this, and it is time for talking about, okay, but how much, right? And the way it basically basically was before, Democrats blamed Facebook for getting Donald Trump. This is a, 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 a crass shorthanding of it. Democrats blame Facebook for getting Donald Trump elected, and Republicans blame Twitter for getting Joe Biden elected. And Facebook content was right-wing, Twitter content was left-wing, and people in the opposing parties blame all of this. But there is also this generalized—and why am I drawing a blank on his name? He's the social psychologist— who is leading the charge for age limits on social media these days. It's funny that we were just joking that... No, I can never remember remember anybody's name. name. I can never remember anybody. I can't remember my children's names. But anyway, it's... It will come. It will come to me. He's very. He's a very famous social psychologist. But there's been a, this big push about the way that social media is breaking our brains. And Richard Pinsky? no, 
New research looking at Facebook. And Good try, Colin. <laughs> new, face, new research looking at Facebook in the run-up to the 2020 election finds scant evidence to suggest that social media algorithms are to blame for political polarization, extremism, or belief in misinformation. The findings are part of a project in which Meta opened its internal data to academic researchers. The results of this collaboration will be published in 16 papers, the first four of which were just published in the journal Science and Nature. One of the studies found that switching users from an algorithmic feed to a reverse chronological feed, something suggested by many social media foes is the responsible thing to do, actually led users seeing more political content and more potential misinformation. The change did did lead to seeing less content, quote, classified as uncivil or containing slur words and more content from, quote, moderate friends. But none of these shifts made a significant difference in terms of the user's political knowledge, attitudes or polarization levels. Now, I'll say the same thing about this that I said about the Twitter files, which is obviously there's a collaboration here between the company and the people doing the research and that Elizabeth Nolan Brown acknowledges that. And so I, I stipulate that stuff and all of that is true. But we do now have some research that says that at least the most extreme claims about the way that social media broke our politics are, are not true and that, that there, there's reason, no pun intended, to be skeptical of those things. And the Washington Post, I believe it's the Washington Post. I don't want to, yes. Algorithms are extremely influential in terms of shaping their on-platform experiencing. Researcher Joshua Tucker, co-director of the Center for Social Media and Politics at New York University told the Washington Post this, or told the Washington Post, despite this, quote, we find very little impact in changes to people's attitudes about politics and even people's self-reported participation around politics. And here's Brown. The Post piece on them contains this in-article ad after the first paragraph. Tech is not your friend. We are. Sign up for the Tech Friend newsletter. It's an almost perfect distillation of the larger dynamic at play here in which traditional media, having lost ample eyeballs and advertising dollars to social media, seems intent to cast tech platforms as untrustworthy, unscrupulous, and dangerous for democracy in, contact, in contrast with the honest, virtual, and democracy-protecting members of the mainstream press. The Post piece goes on to, quote, Three people uninvolved with the Facebook studies who have qualms about it, including Facebook <coughs> whistleblower Frances Haugen. She argued that by the time the researchers evaluated the chronological approach during the fall of 2020, thousands of users had already joined mega groups that would have flooded their feeds with potentially problematic content. So there's the post, moves the goalposts. Well, it wasn't this, it was actually that. And it's really not this, but we can't really see all of that. I just would say, and then I promise I will stop talking. I would just say the problem with social media is its users. <laughs> at, at its core, the problem with, the so, with social media is it's us. And people are the best and wonderful and great, but we're also the worst. And it is a mirror that we're holding up to ourselves and we don't like what we see. And I am not surprised that we don't like what we see because human nature tends to be pretty gross. And I think Brown's point here about and it's one that I always harp on, the media companies covering social media are not uninterested parties, right? They're not disinterested parties, rather. They, they have a dog in this fight. They see them as competitors. The Washington Post sees Facebook as a competitor. And there are advantages and disadvantages in both, in both ways. But let's have a little 
let's have a little cool water on this subject. Chris, it is time for my favorite time of the week. Yes. Reader mail. First off, we have a note from Bill Davini in Virginia. And Bill writes, Chris and Eliana, I enjoyed your episode about your favorite books and movies about journalism. Your discussion of Shattered Glass, a great and underrated movie, and Chris's comments about Charles Lane being a great person brought back a fond memory for me. My son, Wade who has always wanted to be a journalist, is now a sophomore at the University of Maryland's Merrill. Is it Merrill or Merrill? I don't actually don't know. School of Journalism. I'm going to go with Merrill. Okay, Merrill. His favorite movie is Shattered Glass. While he was in high school, we went to the actual restaurant that Stephen Glass claimed to have had dinner with Ian Rustel, but that that closed at 3 on Sundays. The hours are still posted in the window of the actual restaurant, so I took a photo of my son smiling and pointing to the hours. As a surprise for my son, I printed an 8x10 copy of the photo and sent it to Charles Lane and asked him to sign it. Charles Lane signed it with the inscription, Sorry, Wade, we're closed. He also included a very nice and encouraging note with the photo. My son recently says it is the coolest thing he owned. So you are not only a good judge of movies, but also of character. My son and I are big fans of your show. Keep up the quality work. Oh, that is so stinking great. I love it. And I retract some of what, wait, I I retract some of what I said about journalism school earlier. Just make sure you- This is an undergrad school of journalism, I think. But I I would only say my one piece of advice, and and yes, Chuck Lane is a great guy. He is a a peach uh, and a professional, and uh, you are right to dig that. And that is really cool. And that demonstrates what a cool guy Chuck is, that he sent it back and put that note on it. Uh, But the one piece of advice, Wade, I would offer for you is don't go to trade school. Make sure that you're taking lots of history classes, lots of other things. Learn about as much other stuff as you can while you're an undergraduate because after you're out of, after you're out of college, we can teach you how to write an inverted, par- inverted pyramid lead on a story, but I can't tell you about the causes and consequences of the War of 1812 or how photosynthesis works. So get in there. Put College Park to get get the most that you can out of College Park to get a broad liberal education so that then you can be, like us, fake experts on things depending on what the day brings you. Next up, we have a note from Leslie Boomer in Ohio. (laughs) And Leslie writes, first, allow me to say that I enjoy the podcast very much, and today was no exception. But I do take exception to the observation that all birds are ugly. Oh, boy. I am devoted to my all birds. Their wool athletic shoes are a gift to humankind in the winter, and their lightweight, cushy athletic shoes for summer are the best. And in my humble opinion, they are not unattractive in the least. Au contraire, they're my favorite. I felt compelled to defend my Allbirds as I've enjoyed them now for over two years running. Best shoes ever. Peace and keep the podcast coming. I am a big fan and I am always, and I am always waiting patiently for them to drop. Well, I do think that the virtues you describe, Leslie, are more practical than aesthetic. But I take your point. I want to say, and I don't know whether this is a he Leslie or a she Leslie, but I want to say that my son, my eldest son, took similar. He was on a plane listening to the podcast on his way to a a youth retreat when he heard our condemnation of all birds. And I assure you, Leslie, that my son stands with you with all birds and takes takes serious umbrage at our denunciations of all birds. And I should say, 
I have a little confession to make around this stuff, and I'm I'm going. I want to be specific about it. So I think that adult men should wear real shoes, and that this is a a, a sign that you are ready to enter mature adult life. Is that you do not have dress sneakers that you wear to work. And obviously, if you're wearing Allbirds to exercise, or you're wearing Allbirds to go, to go walk your chinchillas, do whatever you want to do. <laughs> it's it's great. I'm 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 all for you. But this summer, I have I have. I've succumbed to temptation. What uh, did you buy? The brand is called Patara, P-A-T-A-R-A, and they are super lightweight, rubber they look sole. really ugly. They're ugly. Oh, they're not that bad. Yeah, and I, I have... I bought one pair for a trip to for spring break. They're not that bad. Because they're light and you can pack them and blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, they don't look so bad. And I bought a second pair. And I feel ashamed because... But they're I, not good either. I have worn for years, L.L. Bean makes something called a camp moccasin, which is a low-slung slip-on shoe that was my go-to summer shoe. And this is sustainable elephant. I think elephants may make these shoes. I don't know. But... They're very light and they're very comfortable. And now when I put my L.L. Bean camp moccasins on, they feel heavy. And they feel heavy on my feet. And I'm ashamed of myself. And I don't know if I'm ready to be a lightweight, espadrille-adjacent person. And you I'm, are, you're not adjacent. These are actually espadrilles. I'm, I'm, well, they have, they're, they're mock espadrilles because it's a rubber sole yeah. with a little, with a little, uh, so I'm, this is me. This is me telling on myself and being accountable to myself about these silly shoes. Chris, it is now time for your favorite time of the week. Heck yeah. When I am forced to say something nice. But lead us by example. Wall Street Journal, Nevada town where the West is still wild. And they had Will Grant, who is the author of The Last Ride of the Pony Express, my 2,000-mile horseback journey across the Old West, write a little travelogue about his journey. And it is wonderful. It is corny in the best possible sense. It is sweet. It is smart. It is just, it's just great. And I recommend it very highly. Listen to this. I rode out of Middlegate Station thinking the Old West is not an anachronism. It's an ideology born from a land of little rain. It's the cultural manifestation of topography, climate, and location. You can find it in every state between the Missouri River and the Pacific Ocean. But in Nevada, it runs closer to the surface. At least that was my experience. That with hardly a shade tree but plenty of wind to blow your troubles away, the desert brings out the Old West's timeless qualities, even in the people who live there. My favorite item of the week was from the New York Times. You're just loving the Times this week. I really am. They were on fire this week. Headline, the secret hand behind the women who stood by Cuomo, his sister. For nearly two years, Madeline Cuomo quietly worked with grassroots activists to help smear her brother's accusers. He was, quote, seeing everything, she told his defenders. So Cuomo's sister, with his knowledge was ginning up women to trash the women who were coming out and accusing Cuomo of mistreating them. So Hillary the Times writes, totally. It was a total Bill Clinton situation, including, this was the best part, good morning, just spoke, just spoke, and he thinks a distraction could be helpful today, Ms. Cuomo wrote in the private text reviewed by the New York Times. This is to the group of, you know, allies she's ginning up to trash these women. She, 
she suggested posting, quote, photos of Charlotte, which is one of the accusers, in her sex kitten straddle, taken from Ms. Bennett's Instagram account, potentially alongside more, quote, austere professional ones of loyal Cuomo aides. No respectable woman would ever pose like that, Ms. Cuomo added. She went on, bimbo photos, really despicable, unsophisticated girls. Ugh. And with that, enough said. I, yes, the, the temptation. Enough the, said? Yeah. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. 